This is David Wilson and welcome to episode 2 of On Another Track. Please enter your password. The following message will be deleted in 3 days. Welcome to On Another Track with me, David Wilson, exploring people and places from around the world. A podcast series that takes you where you've never been and probably where you never want to go. Kids going back to school and people not going back to work. With coronavirus infecting 30 million of us so far, and will voters stick with Trump? Who knows in this weird and wonderful world that we live in? On another track is talking to people that we can't meet with face to face. We use remote video technology and software to see what they have to say. You're open to any questions. I mean, I'm not going to ask you anything really personal and stuff like that, but you're pretty open to having a general discussion. Oh, we're in the, we had a cold spell, so it's in the 80, upper 80s today. So just beautiful here. Perfect weather. That's the voice of my guest, Rob Langans. He wants serendipity, luck, and randomness to be your plan. It happens when you network, and it's essential to get out there. I first met Rob in 2015 when I started working for a company called Hayworth, a furniture manufacturer based in Holland and Michigan in the US. Rob was a fantastic mentor and he took me under his wing for those first couple of days and basically taught me the strategic way of selling rather than just commodity-based selling. And that's something I wanted to bring to my listeners today. So I started off by asking Rob, did he have any ambitions when he was 18? I followed in the footsteps of my family, which is uh, very musical. So my father is a was a uh, high school music director, band director, choir director, orchestra. My older brother followed in those footsteps, and I was a very talented trumpet player. And in high school, I was in all the musical things you could be in in high school. That was the primary activity. So it was only natural I would go to college as a music major. So I did. I went to a college in Grand Rapids, Michigan called Calvin College. Now it's Calvin University. I've got a scholarship in music. And over time, decided I didn't really want to perform for a a living. And I didn't want to teach. So there was really nowhere else to go with a music major. Got a, a degree in psychology instead with really no ambitions other than I loved psychology. I loved the classes. I loved reading about psychology, reading about the research and how people think. And so that's why I went with a psychology major, not really thinking of, hey, what am I going to do someday? And uh, little would I know that later in life, I would actually use psychology. Well, that's a really interesting point. I, I wanted to actually discover two points that you just made there. I, I'm dying to know who your um, your person you looked up to in, in the trumpet world. Who was your kind of guy that you keyed in or a person that you keyed into? Who inspired you in the trumpet world or in the musical world? Boy, you know what? That was one of the reasons I didn't stay with a music major or trumpet major is I wasn't all that into it. So I knew people who were also in band or in, in, in summer camps, and there were kids were so into it and they followed all the performers and and I saw it as more of a hobby and because I was really good at it I didn't really have to work at it that hard so I was busy doing other things uh, but of course I did see some trumpet players over time so Maurice Andre back in the 80s and 90s was a, a famous trumpet player a French guy who was just outstanding and was known for his tone and his articulation um, so Wynton Marsalis, of course, is, is still around. So those would be the two that I would say were somewhat inspiring and some role models. But largely, I didn't I wasn't so into it where I just really had to follow. What's going on there? You know, if you're very good at something, um, 
there's no drive, is there, no, so to speak, to get any better? Is that is that what it is, do you think? It's a real challenge. And my so my son was a great baseball player and he played hockey as well. And he was he had a pa- more of a passion for uh, baseball, but he was better in hockey. And so it was interesting to watch which sport he would gravitate towards. Now, eventually he dropped out of both of them once he got his driver's license. <laughs> of course, yeah. <laughs> you know, at age 16, you find other hobbies. But uh, but it took, it does take a sincere and deliberate drive. And there's lots of books about this, right? To really excel, it takes a lot more than talent. And so it takes the commitment. There's the old 10,000 hour rule. Some people think that's the truth. And some people think it's maybe not as accurate, but... Um, uh, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a lot about the 10,000 hour rule. And uh, so it does take a real commitment to practice. It takes both things, talent and practice and commitment. And I had the talent. I didn't have the commitment. What's the kind of basis for that? I know I've heard of Malcolm Gladwell, but I didn't know about the 10,000 hour rule. To be a real, a true professional, uh, it takes 10,000 hours of practice. And he cites examples of the Beatles went in their younger days, went to Germany over and over to play nonstop for weeks at a time, every single day to get good at what they did. And it took 10. And by the time they became popular, they had almost 10,000 hours of performing in and uh, violin players. They'll say they'll show how many hours did they put in in practice and in lessons before they became the really excellent performers that they are. So there's some others who have done some research to say, well, that's maybe not as true. It's a deliberate practice that makes the difference, not just practice and not just time, but it's the deliberate practice that'll make the difference. So there's some controversy there if you want to dig in and read about it. Uh, but the point is, it does take commitment. It takes practice. It takes um, drive. It takes a desire. And all those things added together with some talent, of course, is, uh, is what produces true excellence. When you actually say convert that into what you were doing, right? So you left with your psychology major and you, you got out of school. What did, what did you do? What, where, did you actually say, right, I'm going to use this? Or you just went into a job that happened to be there? What, what, was the, what was the journey for you? That's an interesting question that you bring up. Because when someone goes to the university for accounting, when they get out, they have a job called accountant. When someone goes for psychology and you get out of college or university, you have a job called there's no job waiting for you, right? It's You're not qualified as now you go into that occupation. To do anything in psychology, you at least need a master's degree. So I didn't have a desire at the moment at that time to go for my master's degree. So I went and sold cars. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah. I was a car salesman for two years. I sold Cadillacs, Buicks, Oldsmobile, and, and Mazda. Right. And it was great sales training because it's it's tough. Car salesmen and people, it's tough out there. And you really learn how to take people through questions, learn how to read people. It was good sales training that I had no idea I would draw on later in life. Very interesting because, you know, it's almost as hard as real estate. You know, I was in real estate for five years myself. And that's that's where I learned to sell. You know, when you start to understand people, the you know, their the way that they um, reply to a question, where they raise those objections, you know, they don't want something. You know, that's a request for more information, isn't it? You know, to dive down a bit deeper. And to understand who the real buyer is. What were the key skills that you learned then? Take us through that because those, I often find that the, the car salesmen, the real estate people, the door-to-door salespeople have learned it the hard way. You know, it's the, it's the world of the tough knocks, isn't it? 
It is. And it's all about needs. And so without understanding someone's need or what are they trying to accomplish, it'll be really hard as a salesperson to find the best solution for that person. And car sales, my experience was uh, was a numbers game. The more people you talk to, the more you sell. Now that I have moved on to more of a complex sales approach or thinking, it's more about not just a numbers game, but really understanding and listening and then finding the best fit, mutual value, mutual fit for longevity in your career as a professional salesperson. So in yeah, in starting out in sales, I was taught a sequence. There were a four-step process to anyone who walked through the door and understand what's going on. You do some questions, you show them some things, then you go into the closing and you try to, to close at the time. And in car sales too, you, you close those people that day. And the phrase was, hey, they didn't come into the showroom to use the bathroom. They came in to buy a car. So you don't let them leave until you're certain you don't have the right thing or it's not going to work. Well, that's the point, though. It really focuses the mind, isn't it? And if you have somebody who's a good um, or a good trainer or a good uh, mentor in some ways, they really can get you on that track very, very quick. Because like you say, it's sequential, isn't it? It's a very straightforward process. It's a lead, effectively somebody walking through the door. It's the conversion of that lead, you know, to an opportunity. And then is does that opportunity convert to a sale? You know, it's three stages, really. I mean, it's more complex than that, but that's the essence of what we do as sales people, I suppose. Yeah, in the early 90s, car sales, it was a different world to some degree. And today it's, it is very different. So in the early 90s, it was different. And we needed a four-step process and would try to bring people through the sequencing and it was proven to work. You hit a really good point. It's a numbers game as well. It's about filling that hopper, isn't it? The more you get in the top, the more you're going to get out at the bottom. And that's the, that's the, the sequence, isn't it? It can be. And I've, I've grown to believe it's less of a numbers game and more of a quality and a qualified game. So, yeah, you can spend all uh, 10 hours calling 10 people or you can spend eight hours doing research and call two people, but call those two people and do it really well. And, you know, that's a really interesting point that you do raise because something I learned as I moved from real estate into business to business sales and technical sales was it's more that consultative approach, isn't it? It's more about sitting down and listening rather than talking as a salesperson. A core belief that I have in sales is that people buy from people. Companies don't buy from companies. People in companies buy from people in companies. It always comes down to a, a people business. And so whether you're selling furniture or cars or technology or whatever it is, medical devices or, or whatever it is, people essentially are saying yes to other people. Salespeople are not in, their, in the product business. They're in the people business. And we sometimes forget that. And that will trip people up. I'd love to move on. So you did, I assume, relatively well as a car salesman and you were pretty successful. But what motivated you or was it, was it a tough business? Oh, no. A tough business. I was a horrible car salesman. <laughs> Why, okay, talk about that because I'd love to dive a little bit deeper into that. So fundamentally, where were you going wrong, do you think, now you look back with all this kind of knowledge now that you have? Sure. I was, I always, I know why I was bad. I was far more into making friends than making money. And... The, and I don't mean to say anything bad necessarily about car salespeople. They certainly, as a group of people, don't have a glamorous name. There are some true professionals who are car salespeople. And, and I have, uh, I know several people, of course, who are car salespeople and they, they're good. And yet I was more into making friends and was not able 
to always look at everyone who walked through the door as a potential sale, but I looked at him as a potential friend and it just, it didn't lead me necessarily to a quicker sale or the pressure. And sometimes people do want to buy. It takes that good salesperson to say, let's just do this one thing and we'll make, we'll get this done and you're going to love it. And people do. So I wasn't necessarily as good at the closing of the, uh, of the sale. Yeah, but again, that's a really interesting point. Again, we found that in real estate was that you can try and close the person down there and then, and you can use your techniques, you know, try three times, do the trial close, you know, how does this look for you, Mr. and Mrs. Jones? Do you think you want to run with this? Or you can do what you did, which is interesting, because I think you got people returning to you in a funny sort of way. You know, you maybe have let them go out the door, but you had a good rapport with them. And, you know, that guy, Rob, at the other Cadillac dealership, I liked him better than this guy at the GMC dealership. I think we'll go back to him. So I think you're right. You probably had a longer process closing sales down. Would I be right on that? But you got them in the end. True. Yep. It took longer. And... um and I, and I didn't make as much on each sale, which was lack of experience. Remember, I was up to my first sales job. And uh, I, so I was there for two years, and then I went into selling college. So I went and worked for a business school, and I would go to high schools to recruit students. So I was the guy that was in the hallway with a table and a tablecloth over it with the banner in the front during lunch hour and say, hey, you should think about coming to see us. And so I went from selling cars to selling education. And that seemed to be a better fit. And, and that's an interesting kind of change because now you've got a captured market. They can't really go anywhere. You've got them coming down the corridor. Yeah. That's the salesman's dream, isn't it? It is. The whole wealth of opportunity every lunch hour. The bell rings, all kinds of potential customers. <laughs> Again, I love that type of selling because it's a very unusual type of selling where you've got leads coming to you. How did you convert the business there? Was it a different approach there? It was because it wasn't certainly a one-time visit. Uh, so re really, we tried to get students to visit and tour the campus. And it was a satellite campus, so a standalone building and in uh, a business school. So not all, not everyone wanted to go to business school. Other people, Many people wanted to go to a liberal arts college or a university and so it was, a, it was very niche, right? So it was only some students who would be would gravitate that way anyway. I had to find those, convince them to come in for a tour, and they'd come with their parents, of course. So we'd talk all about the finances and the degrees and, and all the experience possibilities. And so it was a very much a sequential stage by stage and uh, in a longer term because Kids in school can take months to decide what they want to do, and they have lots of options. And so you had to stay very close to them. And was that a numbers game still, you know, in terms of volume of people coming in at the front end and then, like you say, riding side saddle with them along that journey until they made that decision? Certainly was. And colleges are like any other environment. It's a numbers game. They know how many leads, how many people made applications, how many people visited the campus. It's all numbers. And, and without looking at names, it's just, here's how many people came in. Did they have their parents or not? What did they look at? How long did they spend on campus? It's all analytics and predictive about how many people are going to actually enroll. So you might think it's not a numbers game in universities and colleges, but it is. And so how would you track all that? You know, were you an early kind of um, person that loved CRMs or were you this Excel spreadsheet expert or was it good old pen and paper? Well, how did you keep track of all this? That's a good question. It was, uh, again, this is quite a while ago. So it was uh, in the mid 90s. 
And I think we used something called At. I remember which At was well. an earlier. Yeah, do you remember that? <laughs> yeah, I do. I used it. It was a good database, actually. But yeah. even a CRM back? Did they call it CRM back? They didn't call it CRM, but it was just called At Database. And we used it in the yeah. mid-90s as well. And it, it worked. It was great. <laughs> That's how we tracked it. You were in there at the early stages of CRM then, really, you know, just prior to becoming a CRM. That So, again, I don't know if you feel and you would agree with me, the CRM is really the salesman's sort of uh, treasure trove. It really is in many ways. It is. And um, what I read about on CRM is most companies who, gra- who, who buy one and implement it are disappointed with the results. They often believe it's going to be this panacea of sales falling from the sky because they bought CRM. And instead, it's it's like any other uh, technology, I guess. If it's not incorporated or used or uh, correctly and effectively, it doesn't really do anything. So it's powerful. It can be powerful and it can be really good, but it's uh, the, the rollout's got to be very um, intentional. For sure. And it's only as good as, as they always say, is the information you put into the system ultimately. That's right. Okay. So you did the education side of things. This is really interesting. So you, I can see how the kind of the path is working here. You know, you get the hard knock sales, you're going to something a little bit more sophisticated, but still using that skill set. How did you move on through that? What was the next stage in your business career? Sure. Part of the job for the college was to go to high schools and beyond just sitting in the lunch hour in the hallway, I also would make presentations in business classrooms. So there were um, accounting classes, finance classes in high schools, and I would call those teachers and say, hey, can I teach your class for a day on a topic that's valuable? So something like interviewing skills or body language, reading body language, some sort of a bit, some business related. Uh, one was the global economy was a topic. And uh, and teachers loved it. They had the day off. I would teach every class in their day and uh, on a valuable topic. And at the end, I would hand out these cards and say, hey, are you interested in this college or not? And I would collect those cards. Those were leads. And then we'd have our telephone people call each person and say, hey, you said you were interested. Why don't you come on in for a visit? So presenting is was a major part of my job. And in doing that, I Eventually, the college had a a uh, contest of all the outside reps, and there were maybe 30. And we did a contest, and I came in first place in the contest for these stand-up presentations. I think it might have been a capabilities-type presentation of who we are and what we do. And I think we had to videotape it and send them in. And I got first place, and from that, someone I know said, hey, I saw you won that award. Well, I have a friend who's hiring at her company, it's, she's a company, it's in Grand Rapids, Michigan, she teaches presentation skills. Are you open to an interview with her? And so I, I said, yeah, why, why not? So I met with her, she, for some strange reason, hired me with very little skills or experience in business to business selling and presentation skills training. But she really trained me and mentored and brought me to, and be and helped me become who I am today for sure. Uh, and her name was Nancy Skinner in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So. That was a pivotal change in my whole life was working for her where she took someone with no business business skills or experience. And I had two hats. I, I was a trainer, uh, I, a coach in the programs and also an account manager. In both those things, she was just a fabulous mentor, teacher, guide, and, uh, and really helped me to be who I am today. 
That that's a phenomenal story, you know, because it is those chances that we get, those those chance meetings, the chances of somebody seeing a video, you know, the chance that somebody's going to do a competition where you take part, you know. But it sounds as if you you, you excelled at things that you really enjoyed, like presentation for you. I know from straight off the bat, when since meeting you, you know, you're a great orator, you're a great presenter, you enjoy it. That's the thing; it comes from the heart, doesn't it? I thoroughly enjoy being in front of a group. So what did she see in you and what did she develop to, to make you the person you are today? What did you, what was that all about? I wasn't the only person she employed. So she had a couple of other people and I must have had a similar background as far as college degree and some experiences where she saw potential. So somehow she saw potential in me that I didn't see in myself. And um, and so that was a critical piece. And, so, and she was very savvy. In fact, after I left working for her after seven years and went to Hayworth, uh, as, a, as a sales and dealer trainer at Hayworth, I got certified in all kinds of different programs like spin selling and Miller-Hyman's blue sheet um, strategic selling. And every time I would take one of those certifications, I would say, you know, the, the woman I used to work for did all these things already. So in spin selling, it was based on research. What do the best sellers do? And the Neil Rackham found the best sellers take customers or prospects through a sequence of four things, S-P-I-N. And uh, in learning that, I said, you know, she did that. And she must have been one of the people, she wasn't, but she would have been one of the people that they would have studied of what do the best sellers do. And so all the way through all those certifications, I'd say, yeah, she was doing this even before the training came out. So, so. she was a complete natural then, you know, she knew she had was. to read people. And I imagine, did she have a kind of degree or was it just the, the business of life, learning life? Both things. Yeah, both things. She had, I think she had a um, degree in PR mm-hmm. and, um, and then started her own business at some point. I guess I don't know the full background. But she was very well connected, knew all the, um, she was on a lot of different boards, very well connected with the executives and CEOs and leaders in the community in Grand Rapids. And that opened a lot of doors for business for her. So so I'd like to talk about networking in a few minutes, but I know that you alluded to now that you moved to kind of Hayworth after about seven years of being with uh, your, your previous employer. Uh, how did that come about? Was that just, again, purely by luck and accident or... Less by luck, it was more by she wanted to retire. She sold her business. Right. And she sold it to a law firm, which was the law firm was uh, in the in they were buying a number of different um, competencies. So a headhunter firm and a financial services firm and then the presentation skills training, business training. And and they were compiling all these businesses. And uh, and through that change and through that um change in ownership and leadership, it was becoming obvious it wasn't the same as it always was. And I thought, okay, it might be time to find something different. And that's when I found the job at Hayworth and um, applied for it. And Hayworth was one of, my, one of my customers at the time. So I already knew who they were. And I saw the job posted and thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for that one and see if it works out. And it did. And that was how I was there for 16 years. You're halfway through listening to On Another Track with myself, David Wilson and Rob Langians. And I wanted to delve into the importance of networking, but also I asked Rob, how did he get to grips with being employed at a fairly safe business and now having to figure out another income stream? Rob also alluded to the use of psychology to get himself in the right frame of mind for running his own business. In 
in terms of sales, it's not just about point to point, is it? It's about building relationships with people, ultimately, as you alluded to earlier on. How important is networking, do you think? There's a book called The Click Moment by Franz Johansson, and it's not new. It's maybe eight years old now already, maybe seven. The Click Moment, and that book talks about, uh, he argues that all of business success is not because of great strategic planning, but instead because of serendipity, luck, and randomness. Now, when you first hear that, you say, oh, in other words, so what do I have to do? Just wait till I'm lucky? No, not at all. The, his point is, have those three things be the plan. And the only way that serendipity, luck, and randomness happen is when you're out meeting people, you're out doing things, you're out being active, you're joining in clubs, and you're out presenting, and you're out communicating. You're out networking. That's how you make your own luck happen. Those chance interactions don't happen in your basement. They happen away from your home and away from your office quite often. And so networking is critical. And not just networking, but also being involved and being a part of of a community-based service type philanthropy organization or a trade organization and, uh, and doing more than just showing up, but also being involved. So networking is critical. And, um, and if I may extend one more thought, so in leaving because of the uh, COVID-19 downturn in the economy, the, um, I've reached out to people I've known So in at Hayworth and our dealer network, but then also I haven't talked to you in more than 10 years and through LinkedIn found them and connected. And it's been so great how open people are to connect, reconnect, engage, and then refer. Which is phenomenal, isn't it? And that's the secret of the digital linking or networking, isn't it? You get on the right platform, you're bold enough to reach out because some people are frightened to reach out, aren't they? They're a bit worried. How would somebody react and what have you? How do you get over those nerves? I was nervous for the first about maybe three weeks. (laughs) And then I thought, I'm starting a business here. I have so much for nerves. I'm calling people. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, being bold, isn't it? It's it's being bold and reaching out. You just got to go do it. And I got over it really quickly when I was two months into the business and said, hey, I got to make some things happen here. And so necessity is the mother of invention, right? Totally. Absolutely agree with you on that. And I have to say my experience of, of LinkedIn is being just phenomenal because you know what? I was able to reach out to you because I saw us changing your status. I saw, wait a minute, Rob's got a new business here. This intrigues me. And, I, you know, I'm definitely a people person. I come from a, well, the Scots are gregarious people. You know, you're born in Glasgow and you get on a Glasgow bus, you know somebody's life story in two minutes. You know, it's that type of environment. <laughs> so we're gregarious people. We like talking to people and finding out about people. So that's that's a really great point you bring us to because with COVID-19, it's really focused our minds. It's actually put people in a very difficult position in many cases. But I think also what it's done, and I heard from one of my other work colleagues today, it's kind of switched things. They've not, he said, and I quote him, I've never seen so many people doing completely different gigs in their lives, taking chances and reaching out like you did uh, out of the blue to people and reconnecting with people, which is a great thing. You know, we have this virus that's causing havoc in the world, but because that's a force, you know, that's here, it's affecting change somewhere else. And that's that. And it's a positive change in many respects, you know. I, I would suggest in two to three, maybe four years time, we're going to learn an awful lot about this time period. And there'll be books written, there'll be observations made, there'll be interviews done. 
of the positive things that came out of it. Now, of course, there's so much going on right now in society. Uh, I think in two to three, four years, we're going to see a lot of really interesting and valuable outcomes and lessons learned. And But we don't have those yet. I, I, maybe yeah. there are some coming, and I haven't seen them yet, but there's going to be some real some really good lessons learned. And there's a lot of negative, like I said, there, you know, there's some hard times, no question. And yet, like you said, there'll be something coming out of it. You know, and one of the things that I, I would like to talk to you about, and, and you do have your own business now, and I'd like you to be able to sort of give me a little bit of background to that. So when you, when you sort of got let go, so to speak, hey, I said, look, you know, we're just going to have to, you know, basically um, let some of you go in a first phase. There's obviously a fear factor that kicks in, isn't it? Because you've been with them for a long time. But how did you get your brain in gear and how did you start to focus and then decide what your business was going to be? Can you talk me through that? Sure. Yeah, the, it was a surprise to have my job cut because I was really busy. And my job to be a, to give the short answer for the listeners, my job was to help field sales teams prepare for important presentations. So uh, in the furniture business, it'd be mock-up presentations, showroom tours, those types of things where you're face-to-face with the client and you really have to shine. You really have to be on what your, your game and, and speak directly to the decision criteria from the, from the customer or the visitor. So I would help our team strategize that, those engagements, and then execute them. So I wasn't customer-facing. I was helping the teams be really good when the customer arrives. Like the director of a play, right? The director of a play helps the actors and the script come together for a great production, And what I did and what I do now in my business, that's where I'm headed with this commentary. What I do now is the same thing, is I help salespeople and the content of what they want to say, help those two things come together for a great presentation. Some people call it a pitch. Um, So in my, when my job got eliminated, I so enjoyed what I was doing that it didn't take me, didn't take me very long to decide that I want to do, I want to continue to do what I was doing and do it for anyone. And so that launched my business and I had to come up with a name and a website and it all happened very quickly. And and so looking back, when you pulled that together, now the dust has settled a little bit. What's the reality of being in your own business and being in this sort of sphere that you're in? Because I, I know running my own business, it's it's a baptism of fire. There's highs and lows. And some days you sit in that four, you know, those four walls, you think, who am I going to speak to today, you know? So what did, what were the feelings that were going through you? And then how did you kind of overcome those and convert those to, you know, like product or to having those conversations? It's a daily battle of optimism and pessimism. Totally. Yes, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you have a phone call and the glass is half full and all. you have a good phone call. It's three quarters full. Well, then the next phone call is not as good and it's, you know, empty. And so it's a constant battle between optimism to say, okay, I've been at this and today, as of today, it'll, it's close to four months since official launch. And uh, so there's a lot of optimism, a lot of really good things. I have all kinds of really good things happening. And then there's days or moments where there's pessimism to say, those good things are good. Is it enough? Is it enough to press on because there's dates on the calendar and there's finances that are down the road and it's always a challenge between the two things. And then the other part is on your own, you are the CFO, the CEO, the VP of sales, the VP, you're all the hats. And that adds to the pressure. Yeah, and, and absolutely. And, and it's really, I think, for our listeners, and especially people who are going into their business, 
How do you cope with the down days? What's the, the psychology? Because you've got that psychology background, you know, and you know how the mind works. It's easy enough to sort of think about it in theory, but what do you do in practice? What are some of the practical things as a business owner that you do to say, you know, having a pretty down day today, how do you get yourself back up? What's your kind of the way you do it? I guess I'm fortunate to have taken and experienced and even taught some emotional intelligence over the years and EI. And so the the pillars there are self-awareness. So what am I feeling right now? And how is that impacting myself and those around me? And then self-regulation, the first two pillars of emotional intelligence. Self-awareness, what am I feeling? Self-regulation, what am I going to do about it? How am I going to react? And choosing how to react. Even though that's knowledge, the emotion of it is still uh, challenging to say, okay, I know I'm feeling maybe challenged or even depressed on some days or, or feeling less than confident. And yet you have a phone call coming up and you can't have that face on of, gosh, I don't know what, right? You can't do that. So it's emotional intelligence. There's a little bit of acting sometimes and there's enough positive to keep you going. And that's great. And you did touch on that point. There's a bit of acting as well, isn't it? It's about dusting yourself down, put on the, you know, the, the, the face for the stage and having a go. Just get on and do something. Yeah. And learn after every phone call, after every experience, always learn and adjust. So I've had to do that several times. And I've, I've started a smaller, what I thought was going to be a smaller piece of my business, which is now becoming almost the, the major element and, and so, but that was not my expectation three months ago. And now four months in, it's becoming a, maybe a little different turn in how I'm doing things. So innovation is needed. I'm always thinking of new ways to reach the market, to both market, to sell, but also products or services to sell. Always innovating and thinking and learning all the way. It's, you have to keep learning. That then that's a really kind of interesting turn for the business, isn't it? You recognizing the fact that this is where I'm going to start, this is what I want to focus on, but oh, what's happening over here? Oh, refocus time, and that takes a bit of courage sometimes, isn't it? Doing that change, it does. And then there's the other part is the naysayers. So sometimes there's people that say, "You what? You're starting a business in an economy downturn? What are you nuts? Why would you do that?" And they kind of some people may even push you on that. Others will say, oh, you're going to do great. I've worked with you in the past. You're awesome. It's going to be great. And so you get both things. Uh, so you've got to kind of push the naysayers aside. They probably do have some good things to say, so don't ignore it. Yet don't be drawn into a negative experience through the naysayers. Is the rich tapestry of business life, isn't it? It's taking those experiences, be they good or bad, and converting them into you know, energy to take you where you need to go. Converting them into energy, that's a great phrase. Converting that energy into positive energy, moving you forward versus making you stop in your tracks. Absolutely. Well, listen, I want to maybe to sort of have a little spot for your business. So tell us a little bit about what the name of your business is. I'd love to know the website and how people can get a hold of you. Thank you for asking. Yes, the business is always strategic. And the logo is one word, so there's no space. Always strategic. And the reason for the name is is in going after complex sales opportunities, if you don't have a solid strategy, you'll end up looking like all the rest and it'll be a, you'll be a commodity. So how do you best get around being a commodity? It takes deep strategy. And that strategy includes a process. It includes an approach, a methodology, messaging. And so the two things I do as a business, the two primary things I do, 
One is to help teams get ready for big, important upcoming presentations where it's either virtual or or live in person. And uh, how do you craft that message? How do you engage the customer, draw them in? How do you pay off the decision criteria so they can check in their mind that you're covering things that are important to them? How do you even learn the decision, decision criteria in advance? Uh, so that's one part. It's that that communication piece, that th- the, like the director of a play, like I mentioned earlier. That's one whole category. The second category is I developed a tool that helps sales teams, individuals and teams, really dig in and analyze and then strategize the opportunities in front of them. So how can they dissect all the people involved in the decision? What's the interaction between them? And then what's the the pivotal agreements all the way along the process of the buyer agreements? And I put that all into a into a software so that it helps people make good decisions based on some algorithms about where to go in their sales approach. So those are the two categories that I'm focusing on. Got you, got you. And if anybody wants to reach out to you, best way of getting a hold of you, uh, do you have an email address? I do. It's Rob, R-O-B, at alwaysstrategic.com. And always is one L and two S's. Okay, just repeat that again so our listeners can hear that again, if you don't mind. Sure, it's Rob at alwaysstrategic.com. And the website is alwaysstrategic.com. Sure is. It's uh, it's right there. We have People can certainly... F- Take a look at what's there. It's I'm pre- rather proud of what's there. And as an explanatory thing, there's some tools people can go access if they want to grab some tools right away that are just free. And of course, I'd happy to explore with anyone who has those situations of a complex selling situation or an upcoming presentation that's important. I'm happy to explore if there's a fit with my competencies and what they could use for um, really hitting a home run. And I'm going to ask you one final question before we finish. And I always ask most of my uh, guests this. If you were 18 again, what would you tell yourself now that you have all this life experience behind you? 18. It's it's so easy to, when you're 18, you've got your whole life in front of you and there's, you've got all this time in the world. And I would say, I'm not disappointed at all with my choices, uh, but they were slow. I would say, make up your mind <laughs> uh, a little quicker and move move things along maybe just a little a little bit quicker to get into what you really enjoy, what you can, can trick, how you can contribute best, find and, and, and use your talents to contribute and and, um, and get a, and be more intentional about locating and figuring out what you want to do. Fantastic. Well, listen. It's been a real pleasure to have you on. And I know we've only briefly touched on the type of business you do, but would you be interested in coming back for a further podcast to maybe delve a little bit deeper into some of the skill sets that you can bring to the table? I think I would I would love that. And uh, taking some of what I do in psychology and behavioral economics and looking at decision making. I did a TED Talk a while back on decisions. And so maybe fusing all those things together and how do people really think and decide and, uh, and then where do salespeople fit in all that? That'd be fun. Phenomenal. Okay, well, Rob, again, thank you so much for being part of our podcast today. And uh, I wish you the best luck in your business. Well, thank you so much, David. I sincerely appreciate the invitation to join you. Thank you. You've been listening to On Another Track with David Wilson. 
My guest today was Rob Langans, coach and owner of Always Strategic, your selling advantage. Remember, there are more conversations coming up in the series. Just look out for On Another Track with David Wilson on your local podcast platform and subscribe. This has been a BritCam production for Urban Aspect Incorporated, keeping us safe on the roads of North America.